All right, we're going to change it up this morning. We're moving to 2 Chronicles. We're going to take a break from 1 Corinthians. And we're in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. The battle is not yours. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. I'm sure you've all probably noticed that we're in a battle. You may not have chosen the battle. You may not enjoy the battle. But nonetheless, we are in a battle. Sometimes the battle rages at different levels. But the battle is there nonetheless. And the question really becomes, how will you respond to it? One of the things that I'm trying to learn as a Christian is that the battle ultimately is not mine. It's God's. And if I will rely on the Lord's resources, if I will lean into Him in my times of struggle, whatever they may look like, whether you're going through an emotional struggle this morning, a spiritual struggle, a battle in your family, or just you're looking at the culture right now and wondering, you know, if we're winning or losing the, the overall battle. I just will tell you that we have to remember that the battle belongs to the Lord. The Apostle Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament letters in the uh, Bibles that we hold, and he said these words, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may take your stand against the schemes of the devil. The call is to put on the full armor of God, and when you do that, you're putting on the power of God. You're acknowledging that you don't have the goods for the battle, but he does. Just imagine what you're doing when you're putting on the full armor of God. You're putting on all of God's resources for your life. Can it get any better than that? Can you have any more strength than that? How many of you remember the old chorus? And now, let the weak say, I am strong. Let the poor say, I am rich. Because of what the Lord has done for us. In 2 Chronicles 20, we have a story about war. From uh, the perspective of uh, the book of Chronicles, uh, 2 Chronicles is where we are, chapter 20. And I just want to set the framework just for a second to tell you that 2 Chronicles is largely a story about the kings of Judah. At this point in our Bibles, what's happened is that uh, the chronicler uh, lays out the life of Solomon, the third king of Israel, all the way down to the Babylonian captivity. So we're talking about four or five hundred years of history. He chronicles that history in 2 Chronicles, focusing on the kings of Judah because after the time of Solomon, Israel became two nations. Judah was a nation in the south with just a few tribes, and there were ten tribes in the north called Israel. Israel had become largely corrupt and idolatrous. They uh, even warred against their, their fellow countrymen, Judah. And so Judah was often standing alone and uh, in the crosshairs of foreign armies and even their own countrymen. And the kings of Judah had to really rely upon the Lord. They had to lean into the Lord for bigger trials and bigger challenges than most of us will ever see. To set a little bit of the backdrop, I want to take you back to 2 Chronicles 16 and show you Jehoshaphat's father. His name is Asa. 2 Chronicles 16, verse 7. It says, at that time, 16.7, Hanani the seer, or the prophet, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Aram, and have not relied on the Lord your God, 
Therefore, the, ar- the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. We're not the Ethiopians. This is something that happened a little bit earlier. And the Lubim, an immense army with their very many chariots and horsemen. Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. There was a time of peace. God had given him peace on every side, but because he had relied on a foreign alliance instead of relying on God as he had done in the past, God said, now you're going to have war. You had peace, but now you're going to have war. See, look at verse 9. This is very important for all of us to understand. The eyes of our God, the eyes of the Lord, move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support you. The one thing that he asks of you, middle of nine, is that your heart is what? Is completely his. He will strongly support you if you give him your heart. That's what he wants. You will have the full support of God if he has your full heart. The response of Asa, then Asa was angry with the prophet. See, sometimes we get angry with the wrong person. We get a message from the Lord through his word or through a a prophet or through a pastor, and we can get angry at the wrong one. We can get, get angry at the messenger, and he put him in prison, for he was enraged at him for this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. Now, Jehoshaphat in 17.1 becomes the king in his dad's place. And I want you to keep that in mind as you flip over to 2 Chronicles 20. There's a, a time of peace. A couple of wars do break out. But here's what it says. It says, uh, Now it came about, 2 Chronicles 20, verse 1, after this, that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, their uh, generations from Lot, together with some of the Meunites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat's name means Yahweh has judged or Jehovah judged. The word judge in Hebrew has a couple different meanings. It can mean a judge uh, giving a sentence, if you will, like a judge in a courtroom, but it also can mean a defender and a protector, like the book of Judges, like Samson and others who defended the nation before there was ever... uh, a group of kings in the nation. And all of a sudden it came about after this that war came. They came to make war against Jehoshaphat. War is not something that hopefully we want, but war is just a reality of this world. I'm sure you've noticed. What you do with the war is really what matters. We all want peace, but peace is not going to really come until the Prince of Peace reigns in Jerusalem. Amen? And so we have to deal with wars, skirmishes, battles, big ones and little ones. And we have to ask ourselves, what are we going to do in the times of war, in the times of difficulty? How are we going to respond? Jehoshaphat didn't want war, but war came. They came to make war against him. There was a whole multitude. Uh, Some came and reported, verse 2, to Jehoshaphat saying, A great multitude is coming against you. This is against your nation, but it's personal. It's against you from beyond the sea. Out of Aram, and behold, they are at 
Hazazon Tamar, that is, and Gedi. They would come up the route from the Dead Sea in the south and come to try to attack Jehoshaphat. When you're a leader of a nation like this and you hear that war is coming, you have to be afraid, you have to be scared, not only for yourself personally, but for your nation, for the ones that you're responsible for. If you're a mom or a dad and, you know, there's troubled times, a grandma or a grandpa, great-grandma, great-grandpa, and there's trouble in the family, you feel a personal responsibility, you feel a, a, a passion to protect and make sure everybody's okay. And so Jehoshaphat was in that situation and he also knew that they would target the king. They would try to kill you as the king to take you out and dishearten your nation. Jehoshaphat's response, verse 3, is very normal. He was afraid, and he turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Now, this is the crucial time for anybody when you're facing a war, is what are you going to do? What's your first response? When the kings made mistakes in the past, and you can read this as you go through these books and read about the different kings, when they didn't rely upon God then God would remove his protection. He would say, if you don't want to rely upon me, if you want to rely upon your own resources, then go for it. And God would let them fight their own battles. But when the leader decided that he was going to lean into God, that he was going to lead the nation to dependence upon God, God would show up in a very big way. It didn't mean that fear wasn't there. It was. But Jehoshaphat, when he was afraid, turned his attention to seek the Lord. And when you and I are afraid, that's what we need to do. Fear is a normal thing that all of us deal with. None of us want troubled times. We all like peace on every side, amen? We'd like to have it calm and peaceful in our families, calm and peaceful at work, calm and peaceful with fellow freeway drivers. But it just doesn't always work out that way. And in those times of tenseness, in those times of not knowing what to do, the question is, who will you lean into? Will you lean on your own resources? Will you respond in your flesh? Will you make unholy alliances to try to survive, as it were? Or will you turn your attention to seek the Lord? Not only did Jehoshaphat do this as the leader of the nation, he turned his attention to seek the Lord, but he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Some of you just this last week participated in a fast that we did. We asked you to fast and pray for our city. We asked you to fast and pray over a city council meeting that got very heated. And name calling was flying back and forth. And there were multiple, multiple pastors that were there at that city council meeting. And we appreciate you praying and fasting because we believe that our city needs a strong spiritual presence. We need to stand and make sure that our voice is being heard for the glory of God. And so Jehoshaphat calls a fast, and when you're fasting, you know what happens. You have to push down the flesh. You have to deny the normal things that you do every day, like eat your oatmeal in the morning or have a banana or whatever you do. And all of a sudden, your stomach begins to go, what's going on up there? Gurgle, gurgle, gurgle. And you have to say, quiet! 
You're not being fed right now. And when you feel the gurgles, you turn them into prayer. And you say, Lord, I'm denying the flesh because I am seeking you. I want to know you. I want to know your power. I want to know the power of your resurrection in my life. And so Judah gathered, verse 4, together to seek help from the Lord. And they even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. The nation followed suit. Notice they, verse 4, sought the help of God. They even came from all the cities to the temple to seek the Lord together. You see, when we have a battle, we know that we can rely upon the one who says, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is our help in time of need. Hebrews 4, 13 through 16 says, There's no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to him, to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. I'm finding out more and more that I'm a very needy person. How about you? I need him every hour, every moment of my life. Not, not just every hour, but every second and every microsecond. I need his strength. I need his perspective. And so the nation came to seek the Lord, to seek his help. And you can do the same in your own Christian walk. He's an ever-present help in time of need. All you have to do is go to him. And maybe that's the biggest battle of all, to set aside time to actually seek him. But that's what he wants. And then Jehoshaphat stood up, stood in the assembly of Judah, verse 5, and Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord, that's the temple, before the new court. All of that story is told early in this book as Solomon consecrates the new court. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, art thou not God in the heavens? And art thou, now, art thou not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in thy hand so that no one can stand against thee. If God is for us, who can be against us? Sometimes we just need to quote Scripture for us. God does not need to be reminded about His Word. Oh, that, I, that's a Bible verse they're quoting right now. Gabriel, Michael? No. God already knows His Word. <laughs> but we need to quote His Word because it strengthens us. You see, if God is for us, who can be against us? God did not even spare his own son. So we go down in Romans 8, and we see in verse 37, and all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I am convinced, says Paul, that neither death nor life, angels, principalities, nor things present, nor things come, nor power, powers, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? He says to Zerubbabel in Zechariah 4, 6, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. It won't be your might, it won't be your power, it will be my Spirit. Just invite me in and let me do the work. 
And so as the leader of the nation, he says, power and might are in your hand. No one can stand against you. You are all powerful in times of war. Fear can be a healthy thing for us, spiritually speaking, because they force us to seek God. They force us to get serious with God again. They call upon us to lean into Him. When you don't need God in your natural, everyday life, you can just go on business as usual. But times of war, times of difficulty, times of challenge force you back to God, and that can be a healthy thing. It's not always a comfortable thing. I completely acknowledge that. But it's a healthy thing for you spiritually. I want to take you to 2 Chronicles 7, a little bit back in the book, and show you when they're uh, dedicating the temple where the people had come to pray. This is 2 Chronicles 7. Let's look at verse 7. 2 Chronicles 7, 7. Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord. For there he offered the burnt offerings and the fat of the peace offerings because the, uh, the bronze altar which Solomon has, had made was not able to contain the burnt offering, the grain offering and the fat. So Solomon observed the feast at the time for seven days and all Israel with him, a very great assembly who came from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt. On the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly, verse 9. For the dedication of the altar, they observed seven days, and the feast seven days. Then on the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent, to the people, he sent the people to their tents, rejoicing and happy of heart because of the goodness that the Lord had shown to David and to Solomon and to his people Israel. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace and successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord, and in his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night, verse 12, and said to him, I have heard your prayer. I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now my eyes shall be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house, that my name may be there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As they dedicated the temple, they were reminded, if you go back to Second Chronicles 20, that God is faithful. But God does respond to prayer. God does move when we pray. God does ask us to invoke his name, to call upon him so that he might enter into the battle. If you want to do it alone, he'll say, have at it. Lots of luck. And so, as the leader of the nation is up there praying, he reminds God of what he did. Not that God needs a reminder. Verse 7, did thou not O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, thy friend forever. Notice Abraham's called God's friend. And they lived in it, verse 8, 2 Chronicles 20, and have built thee a sanctuary there for thy name, saying, Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, 
We will stand before this house and before thee, for thy name is in this house, and cry to thee in our distress, and thou will hear and deliver us. In the early stages of the United States of America, at the Continental Congress, when the nation was really having to make some very difficult decisions in the Declaration of Independence and so forth, they called for prayer and fasting in our earliest meetings with the founders of our nation. People who practice revisionistic history are out to lunch. They have not read the documents that go with this nation or they have chosen to ignore them or they simply don't know. But here's the deal. Our founders, many of them were studying for the ministry or were in the ministry And they cried out to God at the beginnings of this nation that the Lord would help us and his smiles from heaven would come upon this nation. This is the nation that you live in. The United States of America, certainly imperfect, certainly founded by men that had their foibles and frailties and made their mistakes. But nonetheless, they believed in this instruction that if we call upon God, he will be faithful. If any nation decides to make Yahweh their God and to say righteousness exalts a nation but sin is a reproach to any people, God will smile upon that nation. And that's what we've had for 200 plus years in this nation is the smiles of heaven. But we have to be careful that we don't think that we did it ourselves. That it was some ingenuity on our part that made us what we are today. The moment that we do that, The moment that we deny our history and deny biblical revelation, we run the danger of God lifting his hand from us. This is the precedent that we have in 2 Chronicles. Just like we have the story of the Chronicles of Narnia. You guys remember that story? This is the Chronicles of a nation that sometimes trusted God and at other times didn't. And what happened as a result? Will you hear Will you deliver us, O Lord? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.10, He delivered us from a, so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. God is faithful to deliver. And now, 2 Chronicles 20.10, Behold the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, which is uh, in Edom, whom thou didst not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. They turned aside from them and did not destroy them. Behold, now they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from thy possession, which thou hast given us as an inheritance. O our God, will thou not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude, verse 12, who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on thee. I was listening to Alistair Begg preach, and he said, verse 12 of 2 Chronicles 20 is the story of their church. Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Could I submit to you that that's not a bad mission statement for a church? Because we can read all kinds of books that tell us the different models. We can get a notebook about how to reach our community and what we should be doing in this or that, but could I just say to you that if we keep our eyes where they belong, we'll know what to do ultimately. If we seek Him, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. 
Fixing our eyes on Jesus, Hebrews 12, 2, who is the author and what? Perfecter of our faith. We need to look away from the other things. That's what the Greek means in Hebrews 12, 2, and fix our eyes on Jesus. Are your eyes on him? It's so easy to get your eyes off him into the strategic plans, into the bullet point lists, into doing this and that. And Jesus says, no, you're running a race. You look at me and I'll get you to the finish line. You rely on my resources and my power and I'll get you where you need to be. So many times in my life, I've been right here. I don't know what to do. I don't claim to have all the answers. Remember when you were younger, some of you are young right now, and you thought you knew everything about every subject? And then as you get older, you realize how much you actually don't know? Well, that's kind of how life is. Go to 2 Chronicles 14. Look at verse 9. 2 Chronicles 14, 9 says, Now Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots. 2 Chronicles 14, 9. And he came to Marashah. So Asa went out to meet him. And they drew up in battle formation in the valley of that place. <laughs> then Asa called to the Lord his God, verse 11, and said, Lord, there is no one besides thee to help in battle between the powerful and the, those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in thee. And in thy name have come against the multitude, O Lord, thou art our God. Let no man prevail against thee. When you bring God into the battles, back to 2 Chronicles 20, when you have a temptation, some of you hide from God in your times of temptation. It's as though you feel that somehow God may not know what's going on or maybe you, know, you should be on vacation as a Christian for a few minutes. But if you say, Lord, you know I've fallen to this temptation 200 times and I cannot deal with it. It is bigger than me. I cannot beat it. Help me. It's not like it's a revelation to God that you're struggling with that same thing for the 200th time. But when you invite him in, when you say, Lord, I need your strength because I've lost to this thing so many times. I've responded the same way so many times to this situation and this person. God will be faithful to show up and strengthen you. You see, it's all about where your focus is. And so all Judah, verse 13, 2 Chronicles 20, was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. You see, it wasn't just about Jehoshaphat. It was about everyone, the whole nation, the infants, the children, the wives. We're on the golf course one day, and there was a guy walking by, and he was moving kind of slow. He's an older guy, and he walks the golf course apparently several times a week. And, you know, he's moving very slow, pushing his, his bag. But then we watched him hit the ball. And he hit the ball amazingly well. In fact, he was playing by himself, and he dropped two or three balls and hit them all on the green. And we were all like, wow, wow, we never can do that. And then he started moving along again at a very slow pace. 
And he passed us. And he said, do you know the key to this game, boys? And we said, no, no, what is it? Tell us, Mr. Golf Guru. (laughs) Shine on us. He said, this game is all about focus. And we're like, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) But how many of you are over the golf balls of life and sometimes, do you know, <laughs> I don't know if I can stay in camera here, but I'm going to try. <laughs> do you know what the biggest problem of a golfer is? How many of you can say it? It's lifting your head. The little golf ball doesn't even move and you could put it on a tee. But somehow, we want to see where it went before we hit it. Where is it? Where is it? And then your fellow players say, it's right at your feet. You missed it. (laughs) What? (laughs) It's true. Golf is about focus. Your spiritual life is about focus. And so the whole nation is there. They prayed. Write down Psalms 121 and 123. I'm not going to take you there, but I think it will bless you. Maybe for your devotional time, Psalms 121 and 123. Then in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. Now they prayed. But the question is, now what? Okay, we prayed, and that's sometimes how you and I feel. Okay, pastor says, when I'm in trouble... I should pray, okay? Lord, uh, I don't know if I need to pray in King James English. I'll just do regular English, okay? Uh, Help! (laughs) What's supposed to happen next? Should there be a sign from heaven, a lightning bolt? What is it? Well, here, a word came. It came through this man, Jehaziel, verse 14, the Spirit of the Lord came on him and he said, Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves, stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out and face them, for the Lord is with you. You prayed. You called upon my name. The Spirit of the Lord gave a message through a prophet. And here's the message. You go out, but when you go out, you're not even going to have to fight. It's like the book of Exodus when Moses says, Stand still and see the salvation of our God. And God, what did he do? He opened the Red Sea for them to pass through. He said, Those Egyptians, that army that you're so afraid of, you will see them no more after this day. You won't see them again. The things that we fear, you know, fear paralyzes so many people 
It paralyzes the church from witnessing. It paralyzes sometimes us from getting involved in battles that we should be fighting because we let fear win the day. And faith is the antidote to fear. But it's not just faith in our faith. It's faith in God. It's knowing God's been running the universe for a long time. He's dealt with Red Seas and Egyptian armies and foreign armies and millions of soldiers and chariots and overwhelming odds. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you believe that? The battle is not yours. You are part of the army of God. No one can defeat him. You see, all you have to do is stand still and see the salvation of God. Do you know Jehaziel's name who gave the message? He's a Levite of the sons of Asaph. His name means beheld of God, or you could say behold God, or look to God, or maybe God looking to him. Do you remember the story of Hagar? She has that fight with Sarai, and she goes out, and she's pregnant with Ishmael, and uh, she, Sarai treats her harshly, and we understand there's difficulty there, and she goes out, and she's all by herself, and the angel of the Lord shows up, and he speaks a word of comfort to her. And she then names the location. She says, he is the God who sees me. He sees me. In my struggles, in my battles, in my weaknesses, in the times that I do well and the times that I'm so weak, he sees me and he loves me. Isn't that amazing? He loves me at the worst of my times and at the best. And so Jehoshaphat, verse 18, bowed his head with his face to the ground. All Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, fell down before the Lord worshiping the Lord. They were relieved. They were filled with gratitude. But remember, the battle hasn't been won yet. They just got a word. And we need to go out in the power of the word. We need to go out in confidence in God. Do you have confidence in God to fight your battles? Even before the battle takes place, God wants us to be confident. And so he bowed his head. He, he got down, his face on the ground. He worshiped the Lord. The Levites from the sons of the Kohathites and the sons of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning, 20, and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa, about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed Isaiah 7, 9 says, If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Isaiah 7, 9. So the leader of the nation had to encourage the nation to trust in God. He said, look, put your trust in the Lord and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and you will succeed. And when he consulted with his people, with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord. And those who praised him in holy attire. And they went out before the army. Here's the worship leaders before the army. And said, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. 
Now, I don't th- think they put the worship leaders out just in case things got hot and they would be the first one to be sacrificed. I don't think that's what's going on. I think they put them out there because worship is a key to winning your battles. The worship leaders were out in front of the army. Now, how many of you have heard of worship wars in the church? Oh, all kinds of articles came out. And it's this. It's what kind of worship is best in a church? What kind of song selection, etc.? This is a different kind of worship war. This is about worshiping so that you can win your battles. How many of you, when you're going through a tough time, have rediscovered the power of worship music in your life? Amen? You see, what worship does is it redirects your focus to the Lord. We all realize we can't read our Bibles 24 hours a day. But you can be working at your desk and have worship music on. And if you can't do that in your company, put on your little earphones, right? Instead of something secular in your car on the freeway, put on some worship. There's incredible worship out there. And now with these newfangled, uh, whatever you call them, (laughs) what's the thing where you can play whatever you want? Spotify, thank you. I know. (laughs) You can play whatever you want without even commercials, and you can skip to the next song. Just keep your eyes on the road, as my mother would say. That's awesome. That's battling from the offensive side. That's saying, Lord, I need my focus to be on you. So, when they began singing... 22, and praising the Lord. Singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. But the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. As soon as they began singing, verse 22, The Lord did the fighting. Isn't that amazing? Some of you come a little late to church because you don't necessarily like the singing part. Or maybe you're not comfortable with it yet. Can I encourage you that that's a huge part of your Christian life? And sometimes it takes some time to become a person who can get into worship. But the Lord will do amazing things. He will change your heart. When Judah came to look out of the wilderness, to the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and behold, there were, there were corpses lying on the ground. No one had escaped. The enemy simply destroyed themselves. And that's what the enemy will do. They'll end up just destroying one another. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found much among them, including goods, garments, and valuable things, which they took for themselves more than they could carry. And they were three days taking the spoil because there was so much. Because God will do abundantly beyond what what we could ever what? Ask or imagine. Imagine. Actually, blessings often follow the battle. Amen? You battle and you're like, Lord, this has been hard. And you get through it and there's blessings on the other side. And so it took them three days. 
On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah. That means blessing, by the way. For there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, they have named that place the valley of blessing, or Barakah, until this day. And every man of Judah and Jerusalem returned with Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy. For the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. Psalm 92.4 essentially says, He has made me glad. Amen? I will rejoice, for he has made me glad. And they came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. They came with joy. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And the dread of God was on the kingdoms of the lands when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel, just like dread came upon the people of Jericho and so forth. Just as he had promised, the Lord had fought the battle. The Lord, 29, had fought against the enemies just as he had promised. And so the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God gave him rest on all sides. And Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest on all sides. Even when your life is chaotic, I will give you a supernatural peace and rest. Now, Jehoshaphat reigned over Judah. He was 35 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 25 years. This is proof that retirement is at age 60, for those of you who are wondering. And his, <laughs> and his mother's name was Azuba the daughter of Shilhai. And he walked in the way of his father Asa and did not depart from it, doing right in the sight of the Lord. The high places, however, were not removed. The people had not yet directed their hearts to the God of their fathers. Even though they experienced the victory, their hearts were still distracted. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat, first to last, Behold, they are written in the annals of Jehu, the son of Hanani, which is recorded in the books of the kings of Israel. And after this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel. And he acted wickedly in so doing. So he allied himself with him to make ships to go to Tarshish. Remember the book of Jonah? And they made the ships in Ezion-Geber. Then Eleazar, the son of that guy, of whoever that is, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have allied yourself with Ahaziah, the Lord has destroyed your works. So the ships were broken and could not go to Tarshish. You know, this is a reminder after this great story of victory that it doesn't take much to re- ally yourself with the old ways and the old resources. How many victories have you seen God fight and win on your behalf? And how easy do you sometimes find it to go back to the old resources? Or like Peter, to go back fishing. I'm going fishing. And of course, Peter caught nothing. Don't go back to the old alliances. Finish well, brethren. Don't take victories for granted. And you know what's interesting about this end of the story? Jehoshaphat did exactly what Asa, his father, did at the end of his life. 
Asa did so many good things, but at the end of his life, he relied upon an unholy alliance, and God said, because of that, peace is going to be taken from you. We always have to be on guard. And maybe one of the biggest battles that we fight is with ourselves. To truly put our trust in God every day. See, the battle is not yours. It's the Lord's. But sometimes what the Lord does, I think, in our lives is put us into situations where we have to rely upon Him. Maybe because we've been letting things slip a little bit. Maybe because we've become a little bit too self-reliant and God will say, you know what? I think Michael may need to go back into the fire. No, no, Lord, no. Yes, 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 yes. It will burn away things that need to go. In heavenly armor will enter the land. The battle belongs to the Lord. No weapon that's fashioned against us shall stand. The battle belongs to the Lord. And we sing glory, honor, power and strength to the Lord. And we sing glory and honor, power and strength to the Lord. And we sing glory, honor, power and strength to the Lord. The power of darkness comes in like a flood. The battle belongs to the Lord. He's raised up a standard, the power of his blood. The battle belongs to the Lord. When your enemy presses in hard, do not fear. The battle belongs to the Lord. Take courage, my friend. Your redemption is near. The battle belongs to the Lord. And we sing glory honor power and strength to the lord and we sing glory honor power and strength to the lord amen, amen. father thank you so much some of our young ones don't know that song <laughs> but we're so grateful for that chorus we're so grateful for a battle hymn we're so grateful for the God who fights our battle. We're so grateful for an apostle who said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And now there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the righteous judge will give to me, and not only to me, but all who love is appearing. Everybody bailed on me, Paul says, at my first defense. But the Lord stood with me. The Lord, well, he will allow me to win every battle. He will allow me to face every fire, every lion that comes my way. And he will bring me safely home into his heavenly kingdom. Father, I pray for those who are weary in the battle those who are just starting to get a sense of what it's about, and maybe those who may be somewhere in between. Thank you that you fought that battle for us by going to that cross and dying. You fought the battle of sin and death, and you won. And now we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
We have the victory in Jesus, and we are so grateful. We are on the winning team, and we fight from the side of victory, and I pray that you would strengthen your bride, strengthen your church, remind them about how much they are loved, and all the resources of heaven are really at our disposal. You just say, ask me. Pray to me, and I will show you great and wonderful things that you do not know. Lord, we pray over our city and our nation. We do need a revival. May it start with us. In Jesus' name, amen.